Spoilers are most likely to abound during this podcast. Welcome to the CDC Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Swain. With me today, critic from HailingOfTheEdge.com, Zach Alexander. Yo! Critic from his own blog, TevisThompson.com, Tevis Thompson. Hi. PhD candidate and former Kotaku Weekend editor, Maggie Green. Hello. And staff writer for Gay Gamer, Scott Nichols. Hi there. And today, we're talking about Braid. Because I've noticed throughout all the podcasts that we've done, we never actually talked about games on any of them. And looking and looking over the last critical compilations, it was the first critical compilation that we'd done, and it was all, it's also coming. It also we've passed the third anniversary of the game's initial release, so I thought it'd be a good idea to time to do a retrospective. So I guess we could start with what its initial reception was. This was an indie game released on the Xbox Live Indie Arcade, and eventually came to Steam and the PSN network. And its initial reception was pretty positive, but there was a there was a lot of controversy over minor points about stuff that we just don't talk about anymore. Like it was a real revelation that it it was the first game with a fifteen dollar price point. Right. It was also one of the first games that uh, kicked off the summer of the arcade, which is I mean one of my favorite promotions. And it's really funny to me because you know talking about a fifteen dollar price point, you know since then it's like you look on Steam. And it's insane. You know, you're paying anything from five dollars to to twenty to thirty dollars for what we kind of call like indie games, but not AAA releases. And there's a lot of concern about like a drive to the bottom. And the iPad came out, and it kind of like pushed this whole. The you know, there was the iPhone with the ninety nine cent price point, and then the iPad kind of drove that up. And now, you know, on the iPad, there are still ten fifteen dollar games that don't seem to get nearly resistance that Braid really got there. So it was the was it like a groundbreaker or was it just ahead of its time? Did it actually push anything, or do you do you feel that it just it saw where everything was going and decided to be there, or did Jonathan Blow just need to make back his one hundred eighty thousand dollars? <laughs> I think part of it was just the flat out money issue, but uh, there was so much back. I, I think for Braid, especially for an independent game, I mean there had been. The, the, the back story behind it in terms of people talking about it. It's not like we just started talking about the game or Jonathan Blow just started promoting it, you know, six months, a year out. It, it'd been, it'd been so long. I think he already had a pretty decent sized body of people who were willing to plunk down however much he was going to ask for it merely because it was Jonathan Blow and they wanted to support what they felt like he was doing. And we talk about money being, not being as rich a factor, but, it seemed like a lot of the conversation, from, at least from the mainstream, was dominated by complaints about the price rather than what the game itself was. Well, there, there's also, just in general, 2D platformers don't get the same kind of respect in that sense. Like, even now, when Limbo was also released, that had the same kind of flack for being a higher price point. And you know that Raymond Origins is going to get a ton of flack because that's going to be trying to release as a a full retail 2D platformer. And, I mean, just in general, people don't value 2D platformers as highly, for some reason, as other games. On the other end of that spectrum, though, is New Super Mario Bros. Wii, which is... That still had 3D characters, like 2D sprite-based 
in general, people tend to look down on in terms of pricing. I think, to me, the closer comparison would be horse armor, where everyone freaked out about the first time they were exposed to this DLC. Everyone said, it's worthless, it'll never go anywhere, you're gouging people. And now it's every game has launch day DLC. It's gone way beyond horse armor. And you don't really hear too many people complaining about it. Like, I don't think there are as many people complaining about Limbo as there were Braid, really. And I think, you know, it's just the first time we were exposed to it, there was kind of a shock, and now we're kind of used to it. On the initial reception, what about the game itself? I think the the reception was overwhelmingly positive, I think, from just about everybody. One of the only people I really remember coming out and saying that he didn't like the game was Michael Abbott of Brainy Gamer. But he qualified that by saying it was a game that he desperately really wanted to like. So I found that even the people that were really critical about the game really wanted to like it, which I think is kind of a bit unusual. Because usually if you don't like a game, you just don't like the game. You don't feel bad about not liking the game. It was an interesting dynamic going on in the in the conversation in the blogosphere about it. But uh, the blogosphere is a, it's a special type of creature. It's like you feel like a lot of starving for uh, intellectual content within games, and here's one that seemingly presents it. And could that be like why they wanted to desperately like the game? Is that here's something that's trying to offer something more? I don't know if it was just about the intellectual part of it. I mean... It's also a beautifully drawn game. It also has great music. It's also, you know, it's really interesting. It, it took this idea about mechanics, about time travel mechanics, and it really expanded on them in a lot of interesting ways. And I think on reception, uh, what people talked about was kind of the difficulty wall and the fact that Jonathan Blow put up a, a page on his website saying, click here for a walkthrough, and it pushed you through to a page saying, there is no walkthrough, figure it out for yourself. You'll feel so much better when you do. And I think that's really what got people's attention when, you know, when they were playing through the game the first time. Which is interesting, actually, because I played a copy of the game on the PC before it came out because he sent it to me. And it actually, from what I remember, the the version that he sent to me, which I believe was, you know, the, the press version he was sending out to people as a demo. And it was a complete game. Came with a walkthrough, a, a reasonably actually extensive one from what I recall. So... We were allowed to. We were allowed to. I was about to ask: Did anyone try and do it all by themselves, or did everyone or anyone devolve into the walk into a walkthrough? I succumbed to a walkthrough towards the end, I believe. Yeah, there were there are a couple puzzles that they're just not intuitive, no matter how you come at it. And I definitely used a walkthrough the first time, and then I tried to get as far as I could, but I just got frustrated the second time. I used a walkthrough much sooner because I was like, I already beat this once, you know. It doesn't really matter if I use a walkthrough now. Tevis? Uh, same here. A few selected puzzles, but I had trouble with motivation of really wanting to, <laughs> to solve some of them. And that, that impacted how I played the game. So now, now you make me feel like the geek. I, I like used it once for one puzzle. Which one? I don't remember because I know all of them by heart now. <laughs> I actually found the stuff I really had problems with with Braid didn't a walkthrough didn't help. Like I will fully admit, I'm not very good at, at platformers. I'm not very good at twitchy games, and there was a lot of stuff that I intellectually I figured out what the question was, and I simply was unable to execute it. Which of course a walkthrough won't come to your living room and play the game for you. So <laughs> yet. I actually handed the game off to one of my non-gamer friends, and he said he and his brother took, like, two weeks. You know, it was during summer vacation. They didn't have anything else to do, and they just, they just for two weeks, walked it, worked at it without a walkthrough at all. You know, and he said it was, it was a great experience for him. So I think there's also kind of a difference where someone who plays games or is interested in investigating games might come at it differently from someone who's 
not exactly like new to games, but is more casual about it than, for instance, I am. Anyone? On anyone else? So that's how it uh, was initially came out, but how has how it aged over the t- over time? Because it hasn't exactly disappeared from public consciousness like most games do. No, and in fact, it spawned a lot of like spin-off games. Like for a while on Congregate, you know, you just had to look for like a time game, and I think it was called Chronotron, you know, which was basically the shadow puzzles extended into an entire game. You know, stuff like that. It's like the mechanics that it used. A lot of uh, smaller people, like Congregate devs, would pick up and make entire games out of. So I think going back and playing Braid for the first time, or playing it after you've let it sit for a while, I think it's aged beautifully. I think you can really see where other people have picked up from it. You can, and you can also really see where it was coming from. You know, it's it's not shy about the Mario references, about the Donkey Kong references, and I think that still translates pretty well. Tevis, Zach, Maggie. I, I guess the thing, the thing about. I haven't I haven't looked at it and I've been in China so I don't even I don't have my Xbox here so I couldn't I couldn't even poke through it but I uh, it was the way that we talked about it or at least the way that I remember talking about it when I was writing for Kotaku and the way that I remember writing about people who were writing about it we were all sort of talking about the big the really big stuff like oh is this going to be a, a real game changer you know in a lot of respects and I don't I, I don't know that it's necessarily fair to hold any anything to that standard, but the way that its creator occasionally talked about it, I don't know if it's aged well in that respect. I don't think that it's done a lot of the stuff that it was supposed to or right. that people wanted it to yeah. do. But in terms of a, a game, I suspect you know that it has because it was really nice and polished and interesting to play. But sort of on the big, bigger, I guess, meta stuff, I don't know if it's aged quite so well. Yeah. I- I'd agree there. I was playing it earlier today to prepare for this. And the it has solid mechanics. They've aged very well where it gradually introduces new time mechanics and puzzles and stuff. But I don't know. I, I feel like in the narrative sense, it hasn't like game narrative has evolved a lot beyond having its presentation of the text boxes in between levels that what well, I mean, that that's what it is. Right. So <laughs> well, let's. Let's actually no. Go ahead, Maggie. It's fine. Oh no, I was gonna say now. Now, now I want to actually talk about the the damn story because we spent a lot of time talking about that too, and then also the narrative and how it was woven in. Go ahead. Woven in, <laughs> well, I, no, that's that's kind of like, here's a slice of gameplay. Here's a slice of narrative. I want to defend those text boxes. Okay. <laughs> Me too. I'd love to hear a defense of them. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> probably the best defense was uh, Eric Hansen's series, last real uh, criticism he wrote on each world separately, and he explained that since this is a game about time manipulation, you have to think differently about where those text boxes go. And we always see them at the beginning of the level when really they're they're not an introduction to the level; they're a conclusion. And you have you have to be able to think of them as this is representative of what you've just done, even though you're seeing it beforehand. I still don't yeah. think that justifies bad writing. Like, okay. Oh no, the text itself. Right. The text itself, the prose itself, does need some work, but the very idea of the text boxes, it's just another tool a game maker can use. And saying that we've evolved past a tool from being used at all, it doesn't strike me as well. Well, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying it can't be used. I'm saying that there are more intuitive ways. Like, a perfect example of a, a more modern take on that is what Bastion did recently, where it had the narration over it, and that it was essentially the same thing as what text boxes would do, 
but it was at least at the same time that you were playing the game. So it wasn't like the narrative and gameplay were separate experiences that tied them together because you were at least you were hearing it and playing it at the same time. Right. Uh, so, so it wasn't like, here's one, here's the other. Separate. I don't quite consider them exactly the same thing. One is text, one is voiceover, and you can actually use both at the same time to different effects. But both right. of them and contribute like a great deal to the tone of the respective games. Like Bastion is, the feeling of Bastion is totally determined by that narrator, right? And, mm-hmm. and Braid, the text colored the game experience for me in not really great way. <laughs> so the, that, I think that tone is hard to like get a... I don't hear people talk about tone in video games very much, but it seems really important in a lot of indie games that kind of trade in their tone. And tone is not something, you know, that is going to be objectively criticized very easily. People respond to it differently. It's, it's, it's personal, but Braid's tone, to me, and, I, and by tone I don't just mean the graphics or the writing, but even the gameplay has a, a feeling, right, a, a tone. And those together, uh, you compare it to something like Bastion, and I don't know, the, the tone really determines the game experience on these little games for me. So Braid hasn't changed its tone in three years. And so it, when I replayed it this, this past week, it was the same voice I remembered, you know, the same gameplay, like feeling I remembered the same kind of frustrating rewind mechanic that's, I don't know, contributes to the whole feeling of, of this overwrought didactic thing that Jonathan Blow is doing. So... so specifically with regards to like using voice instead of using text, you know, Portal... Is, uses a lot of voice, but it, it doesn't use it during puzzles. And this is because Valve says, like, oh, if you use voice during puzzles, like, you're not thinking about the puzzle, you're being distracted by the voice. You know, if it comes up at the wrong time, all of a sudden your entire train of thought's off. So I think that's one consideration just about why you would go with text. I think the text he put in there was deliberately very easy to run past and completely ignore. I think sometimes people accuse it of being, like, a bit heavy-handed and I don't think it's fair because you can literally play the entire game with like maybe the five lines of text at the end being the only text you see. And more generally towards the story itself, I think the major sin people commit is reading the story extremely literally and going, well, who is this person literally? Is is the princess literally the atomic bomb? And regardless of the quality of the writing, I think the reason it's in there is to be very evocative. And it's evocative around things that the game wants to explore. So if you just if you just kind of think about time travel and concepts that are linked to time travel, right? You you come up with regret, you come up with like love and permanence, you come up with putting a woman on a pedestal or doing something you shouldn't and you also those in themselves get extended to things like obsession. And those are those are really interesting topics. Those are really cool topics that I don't see games exploring very well. So Regardless of how well it's executed, I think that's what the text intended to do. It, it just intended to invo- evoke these fragments that are not supposed to be part of a single coherent plot. But did and it think, evoke them for you? I mean, it did yeah. succeed. You said it's trying to do that. It did that to you. For me, it really did. As a taste thing, yeah. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the text of it. I really enjoyed where it was leading me. And I really enjoyed how you talk about a ring evoking you know, the sense of uh, slowing time around you and you get into the level and you put down a ring and stuff slows down. I think it's a reasonable way to kind of, again, it's not literal. There's not a literal sense of, oh, you're exploring this space in his head where there are little Goombas running around and you have to kill plants. It's just like, okay, these are the emotions we want to explore. These are some gameplay elements that would kind of reflect those emotions. 
But doesn't when he explains the ring in the text as kind of what it does, isn't it kind of interpreting it for you? Because I felt like the actual gameplay mechanic itself was interesting and evocative. And yet then the text kind of digested it for me or it like it determined that meaning or it, it you know, gave basically you know, wrote out the metaphor for me. Whereas yeah. the, the game mechanics themselves like we're doing. I mean, my favorite level is the one, the uh, I guess, World 4, where moving forward goes forward and backward goes backward because uh, that, you know, it evokes a kind of mechanistic world where you're trying to find some little way through, you know, mm-hmm. and not repeat yourself every time. And that that got me thinking that was very, like, evocative to me. But then when there's comments made on that, not by critics, but by the game itself, it limits the uh, potential, you know, meaning there or closes it down rather than opens it up, I guess. You said something really interesting there. Is you you claim that it makes things too obvious, yet a common complaint I keep hearing is how obscured everything is, even with everything being shoved at you. It's it's a weird combination. I think I think it does like trying to put everything together. That's hard. And there's actually you know as as much as it is too overwritten and too overdetermined, it's very vague also. <laughs> so you get a feeling like sometimes it's trying to teach you something. And then you're not sure what that is. And so, yeah, I, it, it, there was a confused feeling there, at least for me. The contradictory thing, because for me, it was, you know, the, the last section of text. And I think I just overthink things maybe too much because I, I had a really hard time. It wasn't even a matter of, OK, you know, trying not to be literal, but I was literally reading along uh, in the original version I played. He didn't have a footnote where he quoted from something and I freaked out about that a little bit so I'm actually I think the reason that there's a footnote in the game now you know because I was just going this game is really overwritten and now he's plagiarizing and what's going on I'm confused <laughs> and I actually would probably would have felt better if it had been even more vague than it wound up being but he was clearly you know he, he selected really specific stuff and he went so far as to quote, you know, I mean, the we're all assholes now. Like, you know, he he was quoting from things like, okay, so why was he, why was it so important that he needed to uh, directly quote from X, Y, or Z? I I don't know. I I I had that that sort of unsettled feeling is one thing that, that sits with me about the whole braid experience, about the gameplay, about the story. That it's just really, uh, uh, you know, like we were just talking about. It's it's very. It's hard to get a handle on because sometimes it's too overwritten, but it's vague at the same time, and so on and so on. I guess I just want to add that I agree with most of what Zach said, but in addition about the idea of tone, is that this is a game about contemplation. This is a game about slowing down physically within the gameplay to actually stop and take a look at all the elements around you to figure out how to do something. And also a game about contemplation in what it's about. It's about contemplating mistakes, contemplating the past, and what if you're like, what if it's like to go back and learn from those mistakes and act upon them. And the text, if you do stop to read it, slows your avatar down before you ever get into the jumping and the rewinding of time. And I feel that that's a great compliment to it. Yeah, and I think... To some extent, it might be a cop-out to be like, well, it's a game about time travel. It's meant to be confusing. You know, like, the text is meant to be confusing. I think that is definitely a cop-out to say. But, you know, specifically towards the atom bomb reference, that confused a lot of people. And I think, again, it's exploring that theme of regret and what if you could do things differently. And it's just one of these, he just decided to pick up this whole, like, cultural sack of worries and just kind of sift through it and see like well what would be relevant here like well what if you were working on the atomic bomb would you have regrets there and he so picked a quote that illustrates that regret so again 
maybe not the best executed thing in the world, but I really enjoyed where it was going. And also, you know, I think the reason Blow is so reluctant to talk about the specifics of the plot or, you know, he's expressed regret about talking about the specifics of the plot is because I think it is... I don't like that he treats it as like some Zen secret, like what is the sound of one hand clapping stuff, you know, but I think his point is that it is very evocative and emotional. And when he talks about it, he just ruins it. (laughs) See, I didn't find it particularly emotional. I found it interesting, but since I never felt it fully got there, that it never really evoked any emotion from me. Me neither. Though I really appreciate the contemplative like part that Eric's talking about, like the I think you, I, I'm, I'm like kind of primed for that kind of game. I like to go slow and I like to sit and look. And But also, I, I guess when I read that, uh, you know, the walkthrough where he says everything, all the puzzles are reasonable and you just have to look at them for a long time. Something about that goes against the grain of how video games work to me. Because while that can be a part of it, sitting and looking at a puzzle, I don't think it's a crime to want to explore a, a world as beautiful as Braid's or to want to do trial and error and test things out. And the game doesn't encourage that. And in fact, like the idea of sitting still while playing a game, I mean, it's in, that's interesting. But um, I, frankly, some of, the, some of the hand-eye coordination parts are a little bit much, but I appreciate that. I love platformers. So like when it would, you know, the very end, which is, you know, people like so much, one thing I really liked about it was that I had to like be on my toes and go after the, the final, you know, princess thing. And this was like after so much slowness in the game, this nice little moment of burst yeah. of excitement, and it really worked well for me. Um, yeah, that's my other criticism. That was the uh, one Pete. moment that really resonated with me, too, the final chase thing. Mm. So I think it's unfair to say that it doesn't encourage trial and error. I mean, you, you literally have a rewind button. You no, can't make a yeah. mistake that you can't rewind. Yeah, and some but, levels are know, worse I- I think that's one thing that, because there, I could be hallucinating this, I went trotting around the internet a couple of days ago looking for it, but I, I swear I remember a lot of discussion about the fact that you don't actually die, and there's this rewind mechanic, and therefore the game is somehow less punishing uh, towards mistakes, which I didn't find at all. I, I frankly sometimes would have preferred to have died and just been kicked back to the start of a level, because yeah. I frequently had to do that anyway. I had to back out of the game because whatever I'd wound up doing or, you know, I would have to back out and just start all over again, which in effect is is doing the same thing. Um, I have so- never... Oh, finish, finish. No, no, no. Go ahead. I have never understood the argument to some of these games not being as punishing as seemingly our Prince of Persia 2008 being one, Braid being another. These are punishing games. They are difficult right, and to pull off just because... And it's just the lack of death. Is there something about actually having the Avatar die that makes it different from any other type of failure? Do we have, like, a consciousness? I think it's the amount of backtracking involved. Like, if if your character dies, you have to backtrack through part of the level that you've already completed. So that seems more difficult than putting you right back to exactly where you died would have died since you don't technically die. I don't know. <laughs> well, Blow says, he specifically says he made the platforming more challenging than anyone in their right mind would unless there was a, because he had this rewind mechanic. So he actually makes the game more difficult because he knows that the player can just rewind from a mistake at, at any point. So I wasn't intending to say that it's an easy game or that, <laughs> or that the level called Irreversible, you know, where you can make a mistake and you have to back out and, and come back. You know, those are put in there to to screw with you because you do have this rewind power. 
Is that all anyone has to say about the design or the story of Braid? Oh my god, I have so much more to talk about with the design. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's why I think I like the vision so much. is because, from first look, if you kind of skip past all the story and stuff, you have essentially a Mario game, right down to the Goombas and the Piranha Plants and all that. And the difference is, if you screw up in a Mario game, you have to go back to a checkpoint. And so, to say, no, instead of dying here, you know, just rewind... That is an awesome idea just from a a usability standpoint, just from a a design standpoint, addressing player frustration. And then to say from there, okay, we have this rewind mechanic. Let's A, spin off like this huge story about the implications of time travel. B, create a bunch of different worlds where each one's exploring a different facet of time travel. And then, you know, even in each of the worlds, each of the puzzles is a subtly different way of, you don't have the same solution twice. So each one's a different way of using these time travel paths. And then on top of all that, to have the last world be in reverse the entire time. So you have to actually go forward in time to proceed where previously you had to, you know, rewind time to go forward. And then that incredible last level where, oh, you have to run from the lava and you get to the end and, oh, right, this is the reverse world. Every single thing up to this point has been in reverse. And now you have to go forward in time and now everything just kind of clicks into place. To me, that is something that is so thematically whole every single thing in that game speaks to a central vision and the way it's just all integrated is really impressive to me and i think the games go ahead oh no i was gonna say i i I buy everything except the we're going to explore time travel beyond game mechanic thing and i will admit that at the point i was writing about and braid came out i was taking classes with one of my professors who studies time. So I spent a lot of time sitting around meditating about time uh, and what time (laughs) means and how we think about time. So, you know, it was very much on the brain for me. And I, so I I didn't see that in Braid and I really wanted to see more. I mean, maybe it was just the promise of it, but I didn't actually get the, we're exploring time travel and we're exploring, like I got, we're exploring game mechanics that involve time travel, quote unquote, but nothing beyond that. It was for me just, matter of the mechanics that exploration that seemed to be mostly blow exploring it and me following behind because <laughs> you know i mean there's something to be said for like i mean the way that zach you just described it sounded great to me like i, right. I would love to play that game and yeah where is that game <laughs> i don't know i feel like the, the wanting to explore those myself and to like Yes, he has a vision, and I really appreciate that. I'm so glad that like he exists in games, even if I don't like Bray very much. Um, so I, I, I guess I would like him to set something up for me to explore that, but following him along, and especially, you know, you say there's all these different ways of looking at time and the puzzles, but the actual puzzles, some of them are insane and not in a good way. And <laughs> yeah. I don't want to push that too much, but, you know, some of them, like, when I first started playing and you have, like, the basic, you have to make a jump over a gap and, you you know, an impossible one to make without using the rewind um, by bouncing off of one of the little Goomba guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoy and I was like, oh, you know, this would be impossible another way. I really appreciated that. But it goes quite far afield of that. And, and then, again, that single-mindedness of the game, which is both its virtue to me and its vice. Like, it, I have to figure out and I know people have complained about this, figure out what he's thinking. Um, and whether it's intuitive or not, like, I'm just not that interested in that actual process in a game of figuring out what someone else was thinking. 
Um, I don't think he's very interested in what I'm thinking. Uh, I would say that one of the problems with his games is that he seems very, uh, there's a kind of a lack of interest or empathy with the player's experience. And this gets, you know, the walkthrough doesn't help. <laughs> um, so, so when you talk about single-mindedness and like, you know, trying to read his mind, like how is that different from Portal or like most other puzzle games tend to have one solution? Yeah, that, yeah, that's well. I think uh, for me, at least, because I I do happen to love Portal. I, at one, I'm a bigger fan of platformers than than puzzle games. So there's like as a personal like thing for a gamer that that matters in how I play games. But in Portal, the basic mechanic of creating portals to me is so evocative. <laughs> I, I I make portals and I just look at them, and I play around with them, and I can play with them in a way that is fun. And I also the game like here's again where tone comes in the humor of that game and the mm-hmm. way that it takes on, I mean, it, it actually creates a character in GLaDOS and it's so, you know, creates this space in which not only I can play, but I can kind of feel out the, what it means to make portals and, and in this world. That just is totally different than a game that feels like it's trying to teach me a lesson about time travel. And I love thinking about time too. So I'm, I should be open to that sort of thing. But portal is not like a school marm, you know, like scolding me. I mean, when GLaDOS does that, it's in good fun, right? Well, here's one of the things about, I mean, I I found with Braid is because people would say, well, you just have to figure the puzzle out. And once you figure out, that's all you have to do. You just have to figure, what is he asking? And the thing that always infuriated me about that is that there were plenty of puzzles, like I said earlier, that I figured out exactly what he was asking and exactly what I had to do, but the damn game was so twitchy, I couldn't execute it. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's the sort of single-mindedness. That's really single-minded. I was trying to answer the question exactly how it needed to be answered, and I would confirm with you know, our little walkthrough or whatever, but it would, it was clear that that's what the, that's what I needed to do, but it was too twitchy for me to execute. That's mm-hmm. to me a bit too single, you know, too single-minded for a puzzle game when you figure out the solution and then can't, mm-hmm. can't give yeah, the answer. Yeah, Portal's very generous with you in that regard. It is. It is. I mean, it's over playtested, you could say. It goes the opposite way. Blow doesn't playtest his games hardly at all, and Portal's like, play te- it's about playtesting. The whole game is about that. So, you know, it's, it goes the other way, but, um, it gave me room to to do my own thing. Yeah, and some of the puzzles too. Uh, you know, you cannot just look at them and figure them out. Like even in the first world, where you have to manipulate a ledge contained within a picture that's like formed uh, by puzzle pieces, you don't get until later in the level. Right, right. Or uh, he actually admits that yeah. part was probably a mistake, and it and that's actually one of the things I had to look up yeah. because I couldn't. I it never dawned on me. That there, that was a ledge. It couldn't yeah. have dawned on me. Yeah. So I, I do think that there are mistakes with the game, specifically around usability. And actually, I think he said, um, maybe in that talk where he was talking about going through the levels, he mentioned part of the certification process, some of the feedback he got back from Microsoft was, this game's way too hard. You need to like do something to help out players. And he just said, like, no, I refuse. So, <laughs> Which I respect on some level. I mean, yeah. I, I like that he's not playing that way. And yet, there's consequences to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, Absolutely. Do you feel yeah. that he could have used, and while not a disruption of his vision, like Microsoft intruding and saying this, do you feel he could have used an editor in some parts, like it's a game-making editor and a writer? It's an editor. 
Um, I mean, that was part of the, because, because that's what really pissed me off about a lot of the conversation he had, like, especially, and it really came through in Michael Abbott's pieces, where he basically said, if you're having huge issues with the game, it's your fault, and perhaps you're not game literate enough to be able to be playing great. Or at least that's how it came off. He may not have literally, but, you know, sometimes that was the impression you got. Well, if you're having trouble with it, it's because you have not advanced to the level of being able to play this game. Which, if you want to take that tack, okay. But I don't have to like that. And I don't have to like being condescended to by a game designer, you know? And I don't think treating games like there's some sort of, like, you know, IQ test. That's certainly not why I go to games. I don't go to be tested or to, like, feel better about myself by by completing them i enjoy them and i but i i find that sort of you know there's just a sort of like it makes it a kind of like a that pissing contest or something some i don't know but it's so funny it's so funny and i know the answer to this but once again you know portal explicitly tests you and explicitly tries to make you feel bad about yourself and i think that's one of the reasons why it's so funny because uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it lampshades the issue yeah and Braid does not... Braid is just Braid. <laughs> you think it takes itself too seriously? I don't, because I love the game. But people who don't like it... Well, there's a place for that. I, I'm glad... Again, I'm glad that this game exists. I mean, did the new game Witness I'm worried about? Because I think some of the things I hear like <laughs> sound like some of my problems with Braid. But on the other hand, a game that he says is about seeing and learning to see, that sounds great to me. I, I'm totally interested in well, that. Well, yeah, but, we've heard this about time travel before. <laughs> sorry no I mean it, that was actually one of the weird things because I went back and looked at like I said I went back and looked at what I'd written about Braid and I actually it, this is maybe appropriate for a game about time travel and memory my writing about the game is a lot more positive than I feel about it now so apparently <laughs> while I was playing the game I didn't find it or at least didn't want to however I was presenting it to the Kotaku audience I presented it in a much more positive manner than I remember feeling about the game, so I don't know exactly what happened in three years, but I think this is a case where it's really hard for me to separate out the game from its author. It's really hard for me to just look at Braid on its own on its own merits, totally independent of Jonathan Blow. That's really difficult for me to do. <laughs> Another word that gets thrown around with Braid a lot and the author, Jonathan Blow, is pretentious. Do you feel that it's deserving of that in, in any way? No. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, but that's okay oh. for me. Like that's not really. Uh, it, well, to... he wants. He has big ambitions, and so like, if that tends towards pretension, okay. Uh, this is one of my pet peeves: is that people call things pretentious, and I, but they don't actually know what pretentious means. And it, it particularly, it, it's not being. It, Pretentious has nothing to do with being serious or considering deep themes or being arrogant. That actually has nothing to do with it. It's making a claim to distinction or importance undeservedly. Yeah, but or, don't you think, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it is pretentious under that. Like this was supposed to be. This was supposed to be like the way that we talked about the game. I mean, it was like the way that we talked about Bioshock. And then we stepped back after six months and we're like, oh my God, what the hell have we been talking about for the past six months? Like, <laughs> why have we been? No, I'm. I'm Lee Alexander wrote a really good piece uh, after sort of Bioshock mania and Ayn Rand mania had died down a bit about, like, we get so excited when we see a game trying to do something that we really go overboard with it. 
Mm-hmm. I think that we went overboard with it, but I also think Jonathan Blow went overboard and, and made claims to what that game was going to be able to do. It wasn't able to support, and he wasn't able to sustain it. Like, I do think the game is horribly pretentious in that manner, and it's condescending. It's pretentious and condescending, which is like the worst combination <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know. I can't help but disagree because it, I do feel that the, maybe not maybe not uh, the cultural surrounding it, but the work itself made certain claims, just reached out to do a few certain things, and completely succeeded in what it tried to do. And it, I feel that it did so in a very unique and subtle manner to certain extents that it completely deserves the distinction and the praise and even recognition that it's gotten over the years. I'm not saying we should we should relegate it to the trash heap. I mean, it's, it is. It's a beautiful game. It's beautifully made. It, it has a lot of work in it. I'm just not convinced that the game is is everything that it was promised to be or that it was... The second be. coming? But yeah, because I, that is kind of how we talked about it and how a lot of people talked about it and how, you know, I, I realize that Jonathan Blow, you know, talked about it like a make or break thing for him with as much money as he, he put into it, but... I don't think that it lived up to that hype, just like Bioshock didn't either. A lot of the stuff that we talk about with frenzied excitement for months on end doesn't wind up panning out, and that's okay, but I still think the game is pretentious under even the dictionary definition of pretentious. I like who's ever ding that was at just (laughs) the appropriate moment. Oh, that was my cell phone. Sorry about that. (laughs) Your cell phone has a beautiful sense of timing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chinese spam. Oh, no, actually, it's my bank. Okay, anyway, sorry. <laughs> so this is a, a lot of how uh, how we view it, but what about the actual content of the game? What this is Everything we talked about is how we everyone discussed it, how the, the interactions we had. But what about the game itself? It seems it gets a little lost among whether... Like, no one ever goes back to the text to see if we remember correctly, like some of you did go back to play it, and how, did the, how does the text actually hold up to your memories of all the discussion to it? I mean, I, w- I was playing it earlier today. I, I think that the gameplay itself, it's, it's a well-crafted game, and the, the time mechanics still work well, even if they've been done since then. And I don't know, I, but for me still, I, I keep coming back to the claims I made about advancing storytelling in games and for me it just if the it wasn't for this story which i know you can completely skip which to me seems like a complete cop-out because if you make your entire story skippable then that's basically saying that the entire story doesn't have purpose in the game at, at all so i don't know it just seems like if it was just the the levels without any of the story wrapping around it i would have liked the game a whole lot more because I, I had trouble with some of the puzzles, but I, it wasn't ever to the point of turning off the game, frustrated, getting angry at it or anything. I, I agree. I don't think you can lose the text and say, you know, oh, it's, it's not the same game then. And I guess when I actually, when I replayed it this week also, the game is for me very uneven. Like even when I'm ignoring the text or trying to forget it and playing through each world, I don't have the same reactions. Like I said, the, the world four with that backwards and forwards thing was very evocative to me. So I, I really was willing to, to stay there a little longer and figure out some of the tougher things. Uh, the beginning was, was good. The, the, some of the shadow work, it, when it gets really hard, 
and some of the ring stuff that is the craziest these i mean it just wasn't even for me so uh, when i come back and and replay the overall experience it's not much different i mean i don't think it hasn't changed for me since when i first played it i think barring a couple of the the harder puzzles you know when when he's introducing a world for the first time you know he goes back to the pit a lot to show the mm-hmm. same concept with different ways i i think that's really great and i'll Mm-hmm. And in terms of like the different levels and stuff, I actually love the boss fights. The boss fights are so fun to me. They're so different from everything else you do, but it's so much fun to drop a chandelier and then rewind it and still have it drop and then hit them twice. You know, that's just a lot of fun to me. And for, you know, my my favorite powers, my favorite powers are definitely like, you know, the permanence and the shadows. You know, and I, I hate the back and forth one, actually. I just, I just skipped through all the puzzle pieces on that. But yeah, it is very uneven because... You know, he leads you into these puzzles and, and you're kind of exploring a power and you want to see where it goes. And then it just becomes like hugely complex and you have to like, you know, set up two shadows to hit levers at opposite mm-hmm. times. It's perfectly coordinated. And it's just like, okay, I give up. <laughs> I really like those action scenes too with the bosses. And any time that involved not crazy precise platforming, but basically just an active screen that uh, goes to my taste in platformers. So I, I did enjoy that. Yeah, when it when it comes to levels, my personal my personal favorites probably are the back and forth level, but also uh, World One, which is the actual last mm. world you play. Just the com- yeah. and it's probably the e- to me it was the easiest of them all to figure out, mm-hmm. p- possibly because you've spent all this time doing everything. Suddenly, when everything is reversed, no matter what what happens, you have all this practice, you have all this thinking, and the solutions are rather straightforward. But it's also that very ending level that, well, frankly, it did give me goosebumps just just to see it pl- all play out. Yeah, yeah, There's that last be, level. That's all, that's all I get. It. Yeah. The, There's something the last... you said for. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I keep on talking over you. The last level is like so. It's just the instant you realize when you rewind that everything is going in the right direction again. I just I love that moment. I think it's it's a great conclusion to the rest I, of the worlds. I agree. Yeah, it wasn't just to me, but part of it was the story. Even yeah. if you just, if For, even if it was just the text from the little monsters at the end of each world saying the prince is another castle. Are you sure the princess exists? Who are you? <laughs> I've never heard of this person. And then you actually see her, and then she's running away from the fire. She's trying to help you. She's doing all this. But then when you actually do the full reversal, and you see that she's actually running away from you and doing everything in her power to stay away. Yeah. I think that 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 was that was the that was the Kaiser Soze moment to yeah, me. Yeah, and absolutely for me because I was looking for the the advancement storytelling. Like that was telling the story through gameplay mechanics, right. right? And you're actually participating in it and going through, and the princess is helping you through, and then the princess is trying to thwart you on the way back. And that actually really resonated with me. And I was wishing that the whole game had been more of that instead of talking at me. And the game's, like, prepared you for that moment, right? You've been learning different things. And, like, when I got to that point, I felt prepared to do this. And instead of, you know, a lot of the the kind of things you learn in the game kind of go nowhere. But there's something to be said for, you know, the the kind of training ground of of a game space and learning it. And then, you know, even very slowly, contemplatively, and then there's a moment you need to act and you're ready for it. And the game has prepared you for that. And I feel like... I mean, I remember when he he wrote in the walkthrough about there's no filler in this game, but filler kind of gets a bad rap sometimes. If you distill everything down to just individual things, you're not giving the player any, you're not considering his time, since the time is so important here, and how you need 
rhythm and pacing and some space to breathe right. and to practice and to do it over. Repetition is not always a bad thing. And so that, that feeling of, yes, it's a very pure distilled experience, but only in these moments when it kind of culminates. And I feel like I'm out, I actually was on a journey instead of these discrete, you know, puzzles that, you know, don't always fit together. Yeah. yeah. You say filler gets a bad rap, and I don't really think so. I just think people label things that aren't filler as yeah, that's filler. Fair. That's right. Yeah. Positive things that aren't filler that are filler, but pure filler is is just awful. Sure. But if it's <laughs> but every if something has at least some purpose, even if it's repetition of other purposes, that doesn't need to be. If it has some unique twist on it, like uh, the, the easiest example I can think of is Uncharted Two, uh, Chapter Sixteen, where you're just walking through the village. There's no action. There's no puzzle. You're just literally walking through. It's a nice. It's a tempo change that's necessary, and I don't count it as filler. Right. But coming back to Braid, I don't believe there is filler, and that even even if some of the puzzles go on for too long or or if it isn't necessary, not a, it's a it's getting your brain working in a certain way, and like any good storytelling, if you distill down what storytelling is, it's all about hiding the fact that you're giving the player the the reader or the movie watcher exposition. It's cleverly hiding the fact that you're just pouring exposition, little nuggets of exposition scattered around other things that when it comes to the end you have learned everything you need to understand why this is an emotional end and yet if you, can, if you condensed all those nuggets that you're describing down into like two minutes and the movie was two minutes it wouldn't be the same experience obviously so there's, there's it, it you would know, be absolute like dull. the brain needs time to figure things out but the heart like your <laughs> the heart needs time to like feel things and so to, to get enough time and enough space to do that that's why I didn't feel much in braid because I'd hit these you know difficulty walls and hadn't had other times, you know, that these quiet times, these other times that, you know, like you're describing in Uncharted, I, those really create an emotional, like, texture to the game and quality that uh, at least I seek in a game. And Braid, for me, given its whole feeling, would have benefited from. Another reason I feel, like you mentioned the heart, that it doesn't connect with a lot of people's heart is that because well, Tim may or may not be a scientist, but he is an analytical thinking person and that it's too cold a game. It's too analytical because it's trying to express the the dangers of being an analytical person that the game itself falls into that trap and it doesn't have enough mo- emotional re- resonance. It's too much cerebral. Yeah, I mean, the ending of the game actually changes the entire story because you find out Tim is not a good person and the quest for the princess is just like it's dumb it's bad it's it's horrible and so going back and and going through the text and you know it seems off the first time and then you go back you know like oh man it's because he's actually like kind of a obsessed person and that's not healthy so that's that's another aspect of the the last level i really appreciate was it it puts the rest of the game in the perspective and yet it seems to me like in a book or a movie that did the same thing you're describing, where you have a little distance from the character, and thus you're able to like see their own, you know, who you thought they were is not who they were, and you go back and you rethink it. It seems to me in a game, though, when you're enacting it, and you're <laughs> basically forced to identify with Tim in a way that's both potentially very provocative and interesting, but also that I don't want him to see, I mean, it doesn't make you really culpable like, like he is, but I'm forced to do things that... I don't really want to do. It's like when I'm playing Red Dead Redemption in Mexico. You know, like, I don't want to do the things that I'm, I have to to advance the story. And, well, it's interesting. But then it, Braid is more abstracted than that. It isn't like the subject matter is unpalpable or it's dull. It, it's a very abstracted. It's an abstracted or a- 
allegorical experience. I actually disagree actually about that. Told. I think, I think so. The Goombas, right? When you when you jump on their head, they get these big puppy dog eyes, and they make this sad little meow. Yeah. And there, there are two puzzles in the game uh, that are really kind of weird if you think about it. One of them is the shadow puzzle, where there's a gap, you can't jump it, so your shadow has to grab a key and jump across and hand it off to you. Mm. And then he just he falls in a spike pit and he dies. And it's like you kind of have to do that to your shadow in order to proceed. And that's a little that's a little off. And then also killing a part of yourself. Yeah. And then in the first in the first uh, level of the left right world, in order to proceed, you know, there's a little Goomba who's about to walk into a spike wall. And if you take a second and think, if I take two steps forward, he's going to also take two steps forward right into some spikes. Like that's also a little bit weird. And so there are. It's not consistent. It's not obvious. It's only, I only noticed it because Blow actually talks about it specifically. But, you know, they are moments that are... That, that is are very designed. well designed into the game. Yeah, it's designed to kind of give you that distance. Well. <laughs> <laughs> if you only learn about it because the developer was talking about it afterwards, that's not intuitively put into the game. That's obtuse. Sure. It's a detail. <laughs> didn't notice it. Then I did. But the thing is, is like, I feel that also could be that that's part of, because it's part of a gaming culture where we're not trained to look at all these minute details of everything. A lot of this discussion has been about the broad spectrums of the structure or the big ideas that we don't, that I've seen actually very little writing on any of the minute details that might occur here or there or what there or what that tiny detail brings to the impression of the world and speaking of tiny details or any game like that speaking of tiny details you know in the hunt levels if you look at the little icons up top each little goomba has its own individual face and you know each little so he did that because he wants you to like again it's designed to make you think about all the goombas that you're stopping you're stomping and it's not obvious you might you know it's pretty easy to just breeze by it but i think part of that is because as gamers, we spend a lot of time stomping Goombas and, you know, killing uh, killing mobs for drops. And he tried to make that more individualized. I, I think I'd be more willing to go along with that idea of this kind of this sensitivity to these these creatures. If if I felt while playing that the the author, I don't even mean below the man. I mean, like this sense of an of an authorial presence when I'm playing the game that you don't have in many games. But this game does have that for me and Mm -hmm. if i felt more sensitivity to the player you know i'm glad that there's sensitivity to these goombas but i don't think that that's extended (laughs) to the player very much and so i feel like it it just gives me some doubt you know a lot of this has to do with how much you trust your you know your ghost author hovering over the the text or the game and here i like these details i like learning about them and yet there's some big detail that was which is me and the player like that it seems that's that same like sensitivity is not extended to. Isn't one of the things about the details that I mean, one thing that I read a fair amount uh, of people say is that they really didn't have any reason to go back and play the game. They they didn't really. I mean, there was a star thing, but sort of in general. And I realize the replayability mess three times. But but a lot of people didn't want to go back and play it. And I know with other kinds of text, with you know with the sources that I deal with and with games too, you really start noticing the little stuff when you've gone back and replayed the game. Like I didn't really have any desire to spend 56 hours with braid. And maybe if I had, I would have picked up on a lot of the smaller things without Jonathan blow 
specifically say, um, I did X, Y, and Z, but you know, authors don't have to say I did X, Y, and Z, go look at it. You're supposed to be able to figure that out for yourself, but not necessarily on the first playthrough or the first read through or the first whatever. Um, but you feel something that first time that compels you to go again, to return, right? Okay. That there's, you, there's but if like the game trust, does compel you to go again. I, it, right, it didn't compel me either. And that's the, like, one of the problems is because to me, anything that's going to be truly powerful and great to me has to have replay value, I guess, as we say with games, but movies and books have the same thing. So if they can't reward you, if you put more into it and it doesn't give you something back or you don't trust that it will or you're not compelled to, then, you know, this isn't like a it doesn't mean there's not value there, but there's something off in the the motivation and in like, I guess the trust. And I don't usually think about authors with video games, but here, like, again, I played this without reading anything about blow. I knew nothing when I was playing it. And yet the sense of him in the game and that transaction between me and his creation, like it didn't engender some sort of trust that made me want to go back and find those things. I didn't know if I pushed the text so hard whether it would yield up anything to me except, wow, you, you know, this is as overwrought as it seems. I am on the exact opposite. <laughs> I went through the game three times, and not just because my hard drive deleted all, all my <laughs> data. I wanted my save back. No, I spent, according to Steam, around 56 hours going through that, getting... I, I went through the extra mile of figuring out and how to get all the secret stars, which, by the way, was a dick move. <laughs> Just to get the secret ending, I could have gone to YouTube and seen the secret ending, but I, I wanted to earn that. And I feel that I've gotten much more out of it. I got much more, I guess, deeper understanding by ex by figuring out all the little details. Especially in the very last world, after the big twist ending, when you're given the final, final text boxes, there is actually two sets of text boxes for each book. <laughs> you have uh, there's the the uh, somewhat analytical one, but then if you manage to get Tim hidden from view, it gives a much more scathing writing on the same subject that sort of diminishes Tim's, oh, I guess, puffed up prominence in his own mind, if you wanted to read it like that. I really like that you can, like, that this game would evoke different reactions. That speaks to some of its power, and, and, and I like, I, I guess I feel like I'm not sure that... Jonathan Blow like is really sensitive to multiple experiences of his game, or at least the way he talks or the way the game's set up. But it does. I mean, I I like to hear this very different experience personally because I find any sense of objectivity and criticism just so false to me that I I, I want to hear about that. Even though the more you describe it, like I I'm still not going to go replay it, but <laughs> I hear about it. But then again, it is a subjective experience. You could play it, even if you force yourself to play it through however many times. I doubt you're going to get that experience. Yeah, it, may not, it doesn't sync with me in a way that it, it obviously syncs with some. And that's interesting to think about, like, how different players are going, you know, why are we coming to these games? What are we trying to get out of these games that we that we care about so much or that we despise? One thing about, you know, the repeatability about it, repeatability about it, you know, the the ending which we already talked about, kind of changes everything. But there's also, explicitly, once you beat the game, there is explicitly a speedrun option, which is, to me, a funny joke, because, you know, it's a game about time travel, and you're speedrunning it. So, and I don't come back to it often. I go, I go back to it about once a year, and I always forget all the solutions to the puzzles, and I always retreat to a walkthrough faster and faster every year. But I still, you know, I still love looking at it, listening to the music. I love rewinding to the very beginning of a level, and just 
that silence that it has when there's nothing going on and rewinding or fast forwarding all the way when you're standing on like a a block thing that makes you not fast forward and just watching the world just like not do anything because you're not you know you're fast forwarding to the end of time for the world i think it's you know yeah it's entirely a matter of opinion if it doesn't put its hooks into you yeah you have no reason to go back to it but there are there is a mechanical reason in the speedruns and you know a narrative reason in the reversal of the final level to go back doesn't it seem like a lot of these indie games like trade upon like they're they're not going to reach everyone they take a specific tone and they make certain choices and they have budgetary limits but and they're going to reach some players in a way that like they their audience is intentionally not as wide so i i kind of like that some of the tones of these indie games the past few years that have been some of them really i respond to and some of them i really don't and to me this is a positive you know addition into to gaming to like make games that are only that aren't for everyone and that even if i don't like braid like i said i appreciate that it exists because it's going to it seems i mean obviously a few of you guys like it it really it resonates and so yeah it's interesting how much braid kind of is a stand-in for the rest of the issues in gaming you know this this debate about how hard is too hard how much help should you be giving the user you know that goes that goes a long way back to when arcade mm-hmm. games were killing you to pump you full of quarters you know and you know the the price points and stuff that whole debate is still going on this whole like you know some people hated limbo some people loved limbo stuff like that you know it's very reflective of a lot of things that exist in video games and a lot of the tensions that exist in making a video game and the, and the other thing is you know like i call it the deus ex conversation because i think warren specter had this it's like do you make something where every player is going to get everything in the game or do you make something where it's replayable and you'll always see a different path and no two players will have the same experience because one is very cheap and very easy to make and the other is so expensive you'll never get a return on investment and i think you know the more indie games can explore that space and and come to a solution to that you know that's that's fantastic Mm -hmm. because right now you know we're at a time where hardcore shooters you know they respawn you at the beginning of the level you have regenerating health and uh they're meant to be kind of something you just plow through in a couple of hours. But that's also another thing with the Warren Spector idea that he's taught, but he's also, he's also talking about two games of equivalent length. And if you're going to do the multiple path, the so wide multiple paths that no two players are ever going to see the same thing is that it actually probably behooves it because if you make a long game with that idea that no two players are going to see the same thing, you have other problems in that, if it's long enough, you want people to play it again completely differently multiple times, and if it's too long, they are prohibited from doing that. And Braid also, I guess to bring it around again, is that it's the right length for that. Yeah. It really is a short game, depending on your ham-handedness, is, is always is, but it isn't long, it's compact, and again, I like that there is no fluff to artificially extend it. All right, we've danced around it long enough. Jonathan Blow. Oh, <laughs> oh Jonathan Blow. I know Ben's going to hate me for including this section. <laughs> I like to pretend Jonathan Blow sits in a corner and makes out video games and never says anything in public. <laughs> That's just my relationship with him. I like to pretend death of the author means I don't have to listen to a word he says. And because death of the author can mean whatever you want, because the guy who wrote it doesn't matter, <laughs> it can't mean that. Right, that's my understanding. <laughs> uh, the irony of the world. Yeah, 
to me, that's actually pretty much my interpretation because he he apparently has commented on everything that's ever been critically written about Braid, except my blog. He hasn't commented on my blog either, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you just gave up after a time, or isn't anyone like, else? I don't know. I I, uh, I find like his attitude and behavior kind of par for the course among like writers trying to make some great work, whether it's actually great or not. I mean, the number of asshole writers and film directors, and I don't like. I just am not surprised by it, and like I also don't pay much attention when trying to focus on the game. And he, I mean, he says ridiculous things. Probably the only thing that changed a little bit my attitude towards going back to the game was his in the av club interview he um he makes a distinction of he talks about you know his days at berkeley of studying computer science and english and he says that he realized that you could just write down any bullshit as an english major and get away with it and if but computer science like you make a program it had to work and he makes this this distinction that seemed like ludicrous to me and spoke directly to the point of what part of the problem with the writing in the game was and why he needs a writer to work with but in this i didn't even like once i read that how it kind of affected when i went back to look at and thought he thinks you can write any bullshit down and your game proves you can't so (laughs) you know i mean i i I didn't i I wasn't crazy about that but that being said i uh it doesn't really matter to me i mean i Miyamoto may be extremely charming, but it I doesn't I don't care. Like I just want to play Mario or Zelda, and I try I don't I don't know. He, blow doesn't affect. He's he's pretty you know dead in my mind for that for those purposes. I mean for for me he's so he's so combative about the thing. It, people who are designing AAA games are not necessarily trying to tell me how to play the game or how people should feel about the game or how if you feel like X Y or Z about his presentation. He's incredibly, incredibly defensive. At least my interactions with him were incredibly... I mean, I clearly got his hackles up. Maybe I shouldn't have called him pretentious on Kotaku, but I did. And (laughs) he's just... He was so defensive. And I found that even... He was so hyper-defensive even in conversations about Braid. And he was really dismissive about a lot of things. And I realized that it's his game. He made it. Obviously, he can have his own take on it. But that's kind of what happens when you release things into the world, right? Like, a lot of people hated my writing on Kotaku. My advisors occasionally hate papers that I write. Like, shit happens. You control, That's what happens. You let them go. That doesn't mean that it's it's really okay to be as defensive and combative as I felt like he, he was frequently, and, and really for very little provocation, when people were being very nice about things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I respect him so much as a designer, as, and watching him play through his own game and, and talk about some of you know, the processes he, he went through and how some of the puzzles, you know, what he was trying to get at with some of the puzzles and why some things worked and didn't work. You know, he's, he was very soft-spoken and very calm and very like, you know, I'm not even going to touch the story like that's blown up on me before. But I, then I, you know, that AV Club interview, I can't even begin to read it because... <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, he says... Yeah, I just like... Oh. Sorry. I just like to note that my English department, you couldn't write any <laughs> old bullshit. No, That's funny. He's making he's making ridiculous claims about the difference between sciences and humanities, which is just it's 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 ridiculous is is what it comes down to. I have seen just as much crappy research coming out of sciences and the social sciences as I have coming out of, you know, comp lit, whatever. 
but he likes to say things and then say I was taken out of context or that's not what I meant. Well, oh. it's not always my job. Maybe you should make yourself clear in the first place. I mean, this just came up recently on, on Gama Sutra. He, yeah. he said something about Xbox Live is, you know, is a pain in the ass to develop. I, I didn't even remember. But like, and then he came back in the comments and was like, well, this was taken out of context. And I <laughs> really doubt that it was, you know, I, I, and, and I hearing from other developers, like, it kind of is a pain in the ass. So he should stick right, by his right. statements. <laughs> And it was part of a, I think, you know, Gama Sutra kind of excerpted a little bit out of it, and then they were going to put up, you know, an even bigger, there was a longer article, I, I you know, so why did he feel the need to say, well, that's not what I meant? Well, maybe he should have said what he meant in the first place. I, I don't know. He just makes my blood pressure rise. I just, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I just see him as, like, Peter Molyneux's evil twin. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it talk, talks for <laughs> big... Same, but, like, just has that little bit that rubs people the wrong way instead of the charming that people forgive him when he doesn't deliver on everything. But, I mean, both have delivered on their promises in their games the same amount to me, so. (laughs) Well, then again, Peter Molyneux is mea culpa after the fact when he realizes he didn't quite reach the stars. Right, that's why I said evil twin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we uh, talked a lot of broad, sort of broad generalizations about the story and idea of interpretations. Does anyone here actually have a, a personal interpretation, like specific personal interpretation of what it all is? Take yeah, I think I, I said my piece on that already. <laughs> I think, you know, it doesn't really have a specific interpretation. It's just kind of a collection of evocative vignettes. All right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you don't so you don't have a theory on what the princess is uh no i'm sometimes not even sure jonathan blow knows i don't know i mean i agree with the vignette thing just because i no i just find it fascinating yes there is no one interpretation overall that's why i but i i went through and i like reading many different people's interpretations i like reading what they think the main theme or what it was about that itself is just and just because there isn't one you can do that over and over and get so much different ideas out of a single work that i find that wonderful just in itself i think for me a lot of the writing just made me so eye rolly that i didn't even like it i had very little incentive to sit around and ponder what the game meant to me or, or what the narrative structure as a whole full of holes as it was meant to me so that's a no. I don't have a personal interpretation on it. I felt similar to Maggie. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I need motivation to do. I need something. I need to believe that I'm going to. There's going to be something there when I push, and the text didn't let me trust it enough. I'd rather think about World Four and its mechanics, and I'd rather like think about some of the way the individual moments in the. The game worked, and even then, I don't have like I can't bring it all together, and I'm not bothered by the fact of not having one meta-like interpretation. The smaller moments work better for me in the game, but to push the text like that, it didn't yield anything worth reporting. <laughs> does anyone else have any final comments? Uh, David Hellman does not get nearly enough credit, in my opinion. His he used to have a comic that no longer runs. A lesson is learned, but the damage is irreversible. It's just a lesson is learned.com. And comic 15, if you if you go to a website and look in the archives, now is not good. It's just 
he has this great comic and it's so funny and weird and beautiful. And then he goes through and talks about like some of the choices that he made in making this comic and why he like organized it the way he did. And to me, it's just like the most incredible thing. And I was so happy that he got some work on Braid and I would like people to talk about him instead of Jonathan Blow. (laughs) (laughs) No, he, he has some really gorgeous surreal artwork that really does give it the idea that this is a mindscape and not a real place. It adds allegorical aspects rather than anything else. Probably more than anything else. Oh, it was absolutely, I mean, it was beautiful. It really was, you know, it was, I think I said it was like stepping into a picture book or something. It was absolutely, that's probably one of the only reasons I would even want to go back and pick up the game again is just to look more and listen more. I can I can leave the game mechanics behind, but the actual production of the game is still, and as we said earlier, has held up extremely well. And that that beauty was almost it was almost at times too beautiful for me because it kind of got me itching to like look like explore it to see more of it, and then I mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know. So there was something both like provoked me, and then I couldn't do anything about that. But also like it didn't seem to always match. I mean, I think the text with that particular appearance made the text worse because it, they didn't match up well. And the text itself, as, you know, overwrought and cloying as it could be, like the it just made it, it gave the game like a precious feeling that the graphics alone, minus the text and a little more letting me you know, get a, go through it. Like I just would have enjoyed its presentation, its world much more. Well, that's one reason a lot of people were disappointed with it, right? If the whole game had been a total train wreck, everyone would have been like, well, it was a train wreck and Jonathan Blow shouldn't have wasted all that money. But it wasn't a total train wreck. You know, there were there's a lot of things to recommend the game, which I think is one reason that people are really polarized on it. Mm-hmm. It's that it is that it's really beautiful and the music was, you know, wonderfully selected and there's but then you've got this horrible cloying you know Jonathan Blow apparently should have paid more attention in his English classes at Berkeley you know right (laughs) (laughs) that's one reason it's so so polarizing but but even even at that it's like an interesting failure like you know failing to bring all these elements together for me it's still interesting enough that I'm definitely going to check out The Witness you know I'm going to see what's going on I want to see some of these ideas about games taken to the next step and what does he do with them and what does he have to say about seeing even if I didn't I didn't think the first game worked I do think the first game worked and I want more of this type of, of intellectual and serious minded experience that Braid gave me and The Witness is well I'm pretty much black yep. I'm going on blackout on uh-huh. it because I want Braid took me by a surprise because I just heard people play Braid, play Braid. So eventually, when it came on Steam and I could play it, I did, and that's what got me so hot. I knew almost next to nothing, and that's yep. what I want for the Witness. I want to be surprised, and yeah, I do want him to be a success for whatever faults I he want may him to have it personally. Sorry, no, I said what? he's got a Tesla now. I think he's doing okay. You know, if he can afford a six-figure sports car. <laughs> I don't think you have to worry that Jonathan Blow isn't going to continue making games. Well, no, it's a succeed in a manner of his work rather than him personally <laughs> succeeding. Yeah, that I want I want great works, and I think he has you know something an interesting point of view to offer, and something that, despite all the indie games in the last three years, there's not another Jonathan Blow exactly. So uh, singular singularness is generally positive to me. 
All right. Well, that has been a companion piece to the Critical Compilation where you can read more on Braid at criticaldistance.com. And I'd like to thank all our, all my uh, guests with me tonight. Uh, Zach Alexander, you can read his stuff at hailingfromtheedge.com. Boom. <laughs> Tevis Thompson, you can read uh, several of his video game essays at his self-titled site, tevisthompson.com. Yes. Maggie Green, you can. She moved on from Kotaku, but you can now read her at the Wayward Historian at mcgreene.com. Org. Dot org. Oh, dot org. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> I can't. Dot <laughs> <laughs> org. Not dot com. And Scott Nichols, he is a staff writer for GayGamer.net. Um, uh, do you have anything occasionally else? Occasionally on GamePro. All right. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Tevis. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been a, it's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.